every single law of the Old Testament was intentional. Some of them are difficult to wrap our heads around. Some of them are difficult to accept. Some of them require a whole lot of contextualization to accurately interpret. Some are ceremonial. Some are clearly openly prophetic. Some are more societal in nature. But every one of the Old Testament laws is intentional. Every one of the laws listed in Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and spelled out in the Exodus and parts of Genesis, every law of the Old Testament points forward to the cross of Christ and to Christ alone. Jesus alone fulfills that which the Old Testament law demands. As you read Deuteronomy, you come upon chapters 12 through 26, you're going to see this litany of laws and statutes. This is often where people get bogged down in trying to read through Deuteronomy. I'm going to try to illuminate ways in which some of these laws and statutes point directly to the Christ. They point us directly to the cross. They make the gospel possible. It is by the means of the Old Testament law that Jesus fulfilled the wrath of God upon the cross. And his resurrection from the dead gives you hope where you sit today. May this law not be an arbitrary historical construct that is distant and aloof. May it be near you in your heart and in your mouth as you believe and as you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because Jesus alone fulfills that which this law demands. The story of the cross began in the Old Testament, and its latest chapter takes place in your heart in this room today as you believe. Now, my sermon is going to largely come from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 10, it's only going to be 10 minutes long. However, I've got about 30 minutes worth of context to give you. <laughs> because we have to look at some of the chapters that our curriculum wasn't able to cover. When we filmed tough texts, we covered many of the most difficult passages in, the, in, in Numbers in Deuteronomy. We filmed for well over two hours worth of footage, but we still didn't get them all. We'll have to get them next time. Sound good? Because the beautiful thing about a uh, nine-year scope and sequence is that you get to do it more than once. You can come back to a book and preach it again a decade later. So while home base will largely be chapter 25, I want to begin with chapter 14, verse 28, very briefly. Overall structure of Deuteronomy, we have like three main messages from Moses. Chapters 12 through 26 is largely laws and statutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw something from there. Chapters 27 through 30 is kind of Moses' final message and the final chapters of Deuteronomy tell the story of Moses' death and the torch of the leadership of God's chosen nation of Israel officially passing on to Joshua who will inherit the mantle and carry it forward from here. These laws, though seemingly arbitrary, again, are all intentional. I'll give you an example, Deuteronomy 14, verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, it's a member of the priestly tribe, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. This, along with its predecessor in the, the book of Leviticus, made it possible for a young woman named Ruth to be able to gather food to eat. There are these commands that seem arbitrary, like don't glean from the corners of your field. Don't gather the things that, that fall from your bushels as you reap the harvest during the barley season. 
And it may seem like a non sequitur in the midst of all these moral laws, okay? You got it, God. Will do. <laughs> God was making a way because he knew, he knew years later there would be this young Moabite woman named Ruth whose husband had died and whose father-in-law had died and whose brother-in-law had died. And she was going to follow her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi, out of the land of Moab where they worshiped Chemosh, where they worshiped Molech, where they sacrificed their children in fire for a better life. And she said to her mother-in-law, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's a Gentile conversion in the Old Testament. Where you die, I will die, and there be buried. Let God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Most beautiful proclamation of loyalty in all of recorded literature. And the most beautiful love story ever written, the book of Ruth. After Deuteronomy comes Joshua, after Joshua comes Judges, which is a really violent and gross book. When I was in high school, I used to sign my signature at the back, Judges 122, just to see if anybody would look it up. <laughs> Judges 1-6, grossest verses ever. Nobody has ever called me or emailed me or Facebooked me about that verse. And then comes Ruth, which takes place during the era of the Judges. We're gonna see God provide for Ruth through many of these laws that are spelled out in Deuteronomy. This is the background to that love story, and that love story is about more than just a man named Boaz and a woman named Ruth. It's about Jesus, our Redeemer, in the throne room of heaven. So in Deuteronomy 14, one of these laws that you see spelled out, we see provisions made for Ruth. As you continue reading the book of Deuteronomy, we get to chapter 22. This is another one of the chapters I wanted to delve into during tough text, but we just simply were beyond time. Uh, an, an interpretive key to that very difficult chapter is this. In the Hebrew context, intimacy between a man and a woman was tantamount to marriage. If a man and woman were intimate with one another, they were, for all intents and purposes, now betrothed, now married, really. Now, this paints some context for the book of Ruth, once again, wherein in Ruth chapter three, as Ruth invites the man named Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, her guardian redeemer, her family redeemer, she's not propositioning him, she's proposing to him. She wants him to be her husband, and she is inviting him. Now, this also, this also gives us a deeper appreciation for both Joseph and Mary in the Christmas story. Because chapter two, 22, verse 22 reads, if a man is found lying with the wife, of another, uh, the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge evil from Israel. All right, here's another example. I mean, there, there were Deuteronomy 22 spells out very strict, I mean, absolute utmost punishment for men who conduct themselves poorly. In fact, if a man is found guilty of rape, he's to be publicly executed. It is a straw man to say that the Bible contains stiff regulations for women's sexual behavior, but no consequences for men. It actually calls for capital punishment multiple times in Deuteronomy 22. Now, in this instance, when we interpret the story of Joseph and Mary, 
wherein Mary is miraculously pregnant by the Holy Spirit of God with Jesus, and Joseph finds out he's compelled to break off their engagement, but to do so quietly, it actually raises our esteem for Joseph because according to chapter 22, verse 22 of Deuteronomy, he had legal grounds to have her publicly humiliated for this, but he wanted to spare her reputation and all of this. Even though he had reason to believe she had betrayed him, he wanted her to be safe. It also raises your respect for Mary, doesn't it? Because she agreed to be the mother of the Christ child, even though she was a virgin, knowing what kind of stigma this would attach to her, knowing that there were even some who might try to enact Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 upon her. She, in essence, risked her life to carry the Christ child. So the the context of Deuteronomy 22, while it's a difficult chapter, actually makes us appreciate Mary all the more, actually makes us appreciate Joseph all the more, also provides more context for the book of Ruth, once again. At the end of chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, you're going to see further provisions made for Ruth, where it made it possible for her to go out and gather in the fields and bring home some extra crates full of honey bunches of oats from Costco to her mother-in-law, Naomi the kind with almonds. And then in chapter 26, I believe it is, you'll see this catalog once more of the 12 tribes of Israel. All the tribes of Israel are named throughout Genesis and we see them as part of the survey, the census that is taken at the beginning of the book of Numbers and again at the end of the book of Numbers. And those same tribes are listed here in the book of Deuteronomy. And these blessings are spoken and these teachings are spoken through the different tribes of Israel. We're gonna see that come back again in the book of Revelation. I'm gonna try to draw parallels from what we see in these Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy, all the way forward to Revelation. Revelation is the most difficult book of the whole Bible to interpret, but oftentimes these chapters of Deuteronomy that everybody skips are the interpretive key because they provide the Old Testament law whereupon God provides ultimate fulfillment of the law forevermore. It explains why God does what he does in Revelation. It explains some of the imagery. Much of the imagery of Revelation is built upon Jewish laws spelled out here in these difficult chapters of Deuteronomy. Now, let's look at chapter 25. Chapter 25. In the first three verses, we see a teaching that will point forward to the beating of Christ. Then we see verse four, which sort of stands alone, and then we see, in verses five through 10, the instructions for leveret marriage, which we'll explain. Let's begin with the first three. If there is a dispute between men And they come into the court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judges shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. We don't know exactly how many times Jesus was beaten. We know that Pontius Pilate ordered that Jesus be beaten, but he was a Roman ruler, and Romans had their own traditions regarding beatings. So John 19, 1 tells about Jesus being ordered to be beaten, but it doesn't actually say the number. Traditionally, we believe, based on Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, that this was likely the penultimate maximum, 40 lashes minus 1. 
Right? We don't know exactly the number, but we do know that Paul the Apostle, according to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, received this punishment, minus one, on five separate occasions. Now, the Romans had a far more brutal sense of corporal punishment and capital punishment. It said that the Roman who issues the beating, beating a man 40 times, if the man who is being publicly executed by a beating doesn't die, then the man issuing the beating would himself be put to death by the sword. And this was to exacerbate the utter brutality of it all the more. So when you think about the, the fusion of the Roman rule that provided Jesus' crucifixion, but then the Jewish background that serves as the impetus behind the crucifixion, it's likely that Jesus was beaten 40 times or 40 minus one. In all senses, we know that it was brutal in the Roman sense, but we also know that it was done in a way that was attempting to abide by Deuteronomy 25, one through three in the Hebrew sense. The crucifixion was brutal, but by his stripes, by his wounds, we may be healed. He took upon himself the punishment that brought us peace. When I see Deuteronomy 25, one through three, I see foreshadowing of the very beating of my Savior before the crucifixion. Now, this mitigation of the number of times that a man was to suffer corporal punishment was to preserve his dignity. It said that he ought not be degraded in your sight. This is the context that leads us to verse 4. Okay, look at verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. So it is not as though in chapter 25 we see this teaching about the dignity of a man while he's undergoing corporal punishment and then a random ad from your local PETA chapter. <laughs> now on to leveret marriage. Rather, I believe these are all one contiguous thought. Do, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. It's not as though this is about oxen. Okay? I read my kids this dumb book, Talking Animals, Poorly Constructed Wardrobe, Meteorological Phenomena, a Largely Misunderstood Female Visionary Leader, A Lion Named Aslan, Bribery Involving Turkish Delight, <laughs> A Sword Wielding Rat. It's Dumb. <laughs> Do you think I may have missed the whole point of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia? There's more to it than just talking animals. If that was your takeaway from the Chronicles of Narnia, you have sorely missed Lewis's purpose. Likewise, if you look to verse 4 and you think, oh, here's a, a quick tip to make sure that you're nice to your ox, You've likewise missed the point. Paul writes about this. He draws from exactly this verse. When Paul in the New Testament, several centuries later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would write 1 Corinthians 9, he would draw from this exact verse. He said, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? See, so likewise, do not, do not miss the spiritual significance of this proverb within Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Like we saw in the first three verses, it regards the dignity of a man. 
do not let your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain for you. Paul is going to draw upon this in 1 Corinthians 9 and make the case that the Corinthian church ought to pay its pastors better. Okay, now, before I teach this, let the record show this is not my way of trying to ask for a raise. I'm fine. <laughs> Right? Rather, I want you to know what Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 is about. Here's what Paul does with exactly that verse, applying it to the proper payment of pastors. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Do you hear that, Pope? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel get their living by the gospel. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for not offering to pay him and Barnabas. Now, he simultaneously prides himself on subsidizing his own ministry through his tent-making business. In the book of Acts, we see that Paul was a tent-maker. He's like the original bivocational New Testament pastor. So he funds his own way through tent-making in cooperation as well with Priscilla and Aquila, who had a similar kind of side business. Then he helps plant a church. Now, in the book of Philippians, he writes something similar. He simultaneously prides himself on not having taken a single dime from the church at Philippi and then in the same breath berates them for not offering him some money. Why is that? Because he knows that he's helping launch these ministries, he's helping plant these churches, but he can't be there forever. He needs them to have a giving structure wherein somebody could come in and pastor the church full time and he can move on to the next. So this is why Paul simultaneously prides himself on subsidizing his own ministry through his own side business and then chides the church for not offering to pay his way. Because this way, Paul doesn't just start a ministry that then dies out. He starts up a ministry and hands the reins over to a pastor. He also gives us instructions for this in the book of 1 Timothy saying that the one who labors at preaching and teaching ought to be paid an ample honorarium. Now, when we taught tough texts, I looked right at the camera and I said, at Highlands Community Church, we take good care of our staff and we're proud of that. But if you are a part of a church that knowingly and perhaps deliberately underpays your pastor, then you need to bring this text up to the leadership because as a church, you need to repent and to pay your pastor well. It may have been about that time that I began to receive unsolicited resumes from other pastors <laughs> at other churches. <laughs> You shall not muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain. This is how Paul applied Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Right? It was about not stripping your brother of his dignity before you while he's laboring here. 
He's trying to tread out the grain. Don't muzzle him. Don't make it difficult for him to do his work. Paul applies that to the paid pastorate. And then in its original intent, Deuteronomy 25, verse four, it was about dignifying your brother even as he undergoes corporal punishment as prescribed by verses one through three and the mitigations therein supplied. Now, verse five is where we learn about leveret marriage. If brothers do well together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Last night at the Saturday night worship service, one fiery woman of God said, Amen. <laughs> And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. All right? Doesn't sound like a very solid burn in our culture, but in ancient Israel, that was a real put down. That means that you don't do what you say you're going to do. It means that you're untrustworthy. You Back out on a deal you refuse to do what God's law has called you to do. Okay, I'll, I'll show you in the context of the book of Ruth. Okay, here's Ruth chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Boaz has been invited by Ruth, the Moabitess, to act as her redeemer. The NIV 84 translates it kinsman redeemer. I believe in the 2011 they changed it to guardian redeemer, or kinsman redeemer in the NIV 84, family redeemer, or guardian redeemer in the 2011. Same with the HCSB. The ESV renders it redeemer. The King James renders it nearest kinsman. All of these are accurate translations of the Hebrew word goel, or goal, which appears 150 times in the Old Testament. It is the one who would step in and redeem the distressed bride. That if she was found without a husband, the, the expectation was that her husband's, her dead husband's brother or nearest kin would marry her and their children would be named for the deceased. Now, if the nearest kinsman was ineligible for marriage, if he was already married himself, for example, then he might just purchase from his widowed sister-in-law the estate of his dead brother. And then she would live off the proceeds and live on the land the rest of her life. But if he is eligible for marriage, it's expected that he would obey Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. In the book of Ruth, Naomi knows where Ruth has been gathering in the field. The same provisions made by the book of Leviticus, the same provisions made by Deuteronomy chapter 14, the same provisions made by Deuteronomy 22 and 24, all these same provisions have all spelled out the destiny of Ruth who is gleaning in a field that just so happens to belong to one of their redeemers, his name is Boaz. So Ruth ultimately will invite Boaz to be her redeemer, meaning be my husband, but then Boaz 
in the moment says, no, there's somebody else more closely related. Now, he's risking the whole love story by doing this. He wants to obey Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, our focal text here. He wants to abide by it, but there's somebody else more closely related. So in the name of his integrity, he risks everything. He would rather do things above board and obey the law of God impeccably with utmost integrity and absolute accountability than to marry Ruth on a lie, having sidestepped the process, having fudged the numbers and how he takes her to be his bride and how he acts as the goel. So he goes before the city gate. The law only calls for two or three witnesses, but Boaz is called for 10 elders. He's gone above board in his um, accountability measures. That's out of style, isn't it? To go above and beyond what's really required or necessary according to the law of God to establish things with utmost integrity. And he has stood there at the city gate where business is done and he's invited that other more closely related kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, family redeemer, nearest kinsman, Goel, if you will, to come and sit down. Verse two, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz is a little bit bossy, but bear with me. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you, if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it, okay? Roll the credits, the chick flick ends unceremoniously. He doesn't get the girl, right? Look at verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Aha, it makes sense now, right? So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. So he enlists this crowd of witnesses and elders at the city gate that they will all attest that he has done things in a way that is above board with utmost accountability, absolute integrity, impeccably obeying what Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 prescribes. But we're seeing more than just, more than just an example of leveret marriage lived out. We're seeing more than just a story of Deuteronomy 5, 25, 5 through 10 applied. We're seeing a foreshadowing of Jesus. In fact, as I've taught from this platform before, we're seeing the story of the genealogical line that would lead to Jesus. At the closing words of the book of Ruth, you see that Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, and Obed is an ancestor to King David, and David, according to the Gospel of Matthew chapter one, is an ancestor to Jesus. Ruth and Boaz are in the genealogy at the opening of the New Testament Gospel of Matthew that leads to the name of Jesus. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Boaz, as he does this at the city gate, acting as the redeemer with utmost integrity who is willing and able to pay the full price, 
the blood relative who is willing and able to redeem the distressed bride who in a time of famine has found provision through the law of God in Bethlehem. This is not the last time God would provide for his people in Bethlehem, is it? As Boaz does this, he paints a picture of Christ. When a piece of property like the one described in Deuteronomy 25, five through 10, will fall into distress, the title deed to it would be flipped over and on the back side of that title deed would be written the stipulation that the widow had seven years to find a goel, a redeemer, who is willing and able to pay the full price to redeem the property. And then that scroll was rolled up and where paper met paper, melted wax was dipped and sealed with a signet ring so as to guarantee that it would not be forged. And it was stipulated that she had seven years to find somebody who was willing and able to pay the full price. Now, this is my humble opinion, my humble interpretation. You can take it or leave it. I believe that in Revelation chapter five, this scroll with writing on both sides that is sealed with seven seals is the title deed to the earth. As we saw in the book of Ephesians, we as the church are the bride of Christ, are we not? I believe that our hopes and our deliverance, that our redemption is made possible by the only Goel, the only Boaz, if you will, who is able to, in the fashion prescribed originally by Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, as the leveret marriage law is spelled out, step up and redeem the bride. Here's Revelation 5, tell me if you agree. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, and, uh, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, have you, can you think of anybody else going before elders to redeem a distressed bride? Does that remind you of Boaz? Is this perhaps what Deuteronomy 25 was all about all along? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation do you think racial reconciliation is God's will I do because I can read from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's a redeemer. 
Do you see what I mean? I think that this shows Jesus in the tradition of Deuteronomy 25, stepping forward as the only one who is of the proper lineage, who the only one who is willing and able to pay the full price to redeem the distressed bride. And then what follows is the first of the tertiary sequences that would lend order to the book of Revelation, where you have seven seals. These seven seals that are removed from the scroll each punctuates an outpouring of God's wrath upon evil. The seven seals are followed by seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are followed by seven bowls. So I believe that this sealed scroll is the title deed to the earth in distress. And I believe that Jesus stands there as our Goel, as our Boaz. This is why Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 says what it says. The New Testament gospel has its roots in the book of Deuteronomy. That which Deuteronomy prescribed is ultimately fulfilled in heaven by Jesus. The word of God is living and active, isn't it? These ancient words bear prophetic significance. May we Strive to be relevant to the Bible. So God here has prescribed a means by which brides who are in distress may be redeemed. Now what follows hereafter, verses 11 and 12, I have to apologize for because in tough texts, I botched it. I didn't do an adequate job of interpreting it. I gave one of the least obvious interpretations of those two verses. So I, I messed up, and I have to apologize for that. I, I failed you in this regard. Highlands Community Church, do you forgive me for botching this? Thank you for your grace towards me. I already went to the studio and refilmed it. All right? I also botched something else, too. You remember when we were teaching Genesis, and I kept habitually mixing up Jacob and Joseph? I did something similar. I kept presenting Miriam like she were Moses' wife. She's not. She's Moses' sister. So I messed that up, too. So I refilmed that too. I'm very sorry, Highlands Community Church. I'm sorry I failed you in these regards, but we've already made it up to you so that the, the permanent version of tough text will have the corrected versions of these teachings. This is hard. because I couldn't find any commentary on these verses. Nobody talks about them because they're insanely awkward. But I tried the best that I could to use even these verses something that would point to the gospel. It's difficult. Being, being a pastor, I used to, I can see things more clearly now. Like before I was a lead pastor, I used to criticize pastors who would allow themselves to become subject to like a celebrity culture of sorts. Because people would put them on a pedestal, but then I've come to see how oftentimes they can't help that. Sometimes people put them there nonetheless. God's been doing amazing things at Highlands Community Church. I want to make sure that you know who gets all the credit for that. Okay? 100% of the good things that God has done come from the truthfulness of his word and the work of his spirit among his people. Okay? Do not mistake this as the source when it's really this. Do you understand? As you move on through the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see a beautiful and perfect foreshadowing of the gospel. You're going to see some difficult things, like in chapter 28, all these horrible, horrible warnings about coming acts of cannibalism in the nation of Israel if they disobey God. Those would actually come horrifically true in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 24 through 30. 
during the, uh, the Ben-Hadad's siege of Samaria. In Deuteronomy 33, you see again the tribes of Israel named. And I find beautiful hope in the fact that these Israel tribes are named once again in Deuteronomy. And then these Israel tribes are named in the book of Revelation. 12,000 from every tribe is redeemed and is saved in Israel in the future. But there's something else in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 30, where it suddenly becomes really happy. It's awesome. Okay, As you're you're plowing through Deuteronomy, please see the hope that's in chapter 30 because it's incredible. You're going to see the context for Romans 10.9, which I share every week. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14 reads, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Listen to Romans 10. Do you think that Paul drew from Deuteronomy when he wrote this? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That would bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. None of us can do these things on our own. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe that it's true? Deuteronomy 30 is the text that leads to Romans 10, and Romans 10 is the New Testament word fulfilled right here in your heart, right now as you believe. The Holy Spirit of God makes it possible for you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Let this ancient law be not far from your mouth. Let it be near you in your mouth. Let it not be far from you. Let it be near you in your heart. Let it be so near, in fact, that it is present right now before your soul in this room. You want to know why God wrote the Old Testament law? It's so that you would believe in Jesus and be saved today, right now. So my prayer is that this living law is right here in your heart, right here in your mouth, that you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth and you are saved. See here how the Old Testament law makes your salvation through the cross possible today. Look at what Jesus has done. He and he alone fulfills everything that the Old Testament law demands. These seemingly arbitrary laws were all intentional, all by design, every single one of them. And it was all leading up for you to this moment that you would believe, my skeptic friend. Would you, by the drawing of the Holy Spirit of God, confess that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord? Pray with me now. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. And Romans 6, 23, I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way, John 14, 6. 
I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life and I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. And now, in a fulfillment of what the book of Deuteronomy pointed to in Romans 10, verse nine, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved, let me be saved, let me be saved in Jesus' name, amen.